0: Coming up on the Mission Readiness Podcast. As these technologies become more capable, uh, as these technologies become more pervasive, as these technologies, in fact, will shape the geopolitics uh, and the interrelationships of states in the 21st century, we're really at a turning point. Mission Readiness is the organization of retired admirals and generals working to prepare America's youth for success. Join us as we talk with respected leaders about the challenges facing our next generation. And now, retired U.S. Army Brigadier General Rich Gross and Mission Readiness Associate Director, Abby Ware.
1: Welcome to the Mission Readiness Podcast. I'm your host, Rich Gross. With me today is our Associate Director, Abby Ware, who's also one of the producers and writers of the podcast. Abby, how are you? I'm doing well, sir. How are you? I'm doing great. You know, I think today is the first time we've ever had a repeat guest on the podcast. Yeah, it is. So we invited General John Allen back on the podcast. He's been a member of Mission Readiness for quite some time, but he is also the president of the Brookings Institution and wrote a book recently called Turning Point, Policymaking in the Era of Artificial Intelligence. So we brought him back on just to learn a bit more about that. Yeah, I think AI is really important. Uh, I'm fascinated by it personally. And so it was really nice of him to come back on. So I wanna get straight into my conversation with General Allen about his book and about artificial intelligence. My guest today on the Mission Readiness Podcast is no stranger to our podcast listeners. It's retired Marine General John Allen. He's the president of the Brookings Institute, a former commander of the NATO International Security Assistance Force and U.S. Forces Afghanistan. He also served as President Obama's special presidential envoy for the Global Coalition to Counter ISIL. You probably remember General Allen was a guest on our podcast earlier this year, and we invited him to come back specifically to talk about artificial intelligence and his book, Turning Point, Policymaking in the Era of Artificial Intelligence. General Allen, welcome back to the Mission Readiness podcast.
0: Great to be with you, Rich. Always good to be with this great organization. Oh,
1: thanks, sir. Well, the last time you were here, we didn't get much chance to talk about AI or your book which you co-authored with Daryl West, colleague from Brookings. I'm personally fascinated by AI, so I really appreciate you taking the time to come back. Could you first start by kind of explaining artificial intelligence for somebody who may not be familiar
0: with AI? Yeah, it's a great question. Look, we've been thinking about uh, the concept of artificial intelligence now for 50 years. And in essence, it's a it's a branch of computer science Uh, which uh, is supported by or describes algorithms that have the capacity to make decisions that have traditionally been the purview or the realm of humans only. And the theory of AI has been out there for a very long time, uh, but it existed in something called the AI winter, uh, meaning nothing was growing because there was no real capacity for the theory of a mathematically developed computer algorithm uh, to make the kinds of decisions that uh, a human might make. And then something really remarkable happened. We began to move into an era of supercomputing. So we had the computational power uh, now available to us uh, in the last you know 25 years or so, but in particular, it, it changes, it gets better every day. And then we had the third leg, if you will, of the AI triangle, which is the, uh, the availability of data. Because an algorithm supported by the computational power of some form of supercomputing, and, and frankly, my iPhone gives you that kind of capability out of the cloud if you need to. What data is used for is to train the algorithm on what is right versus what isn't right. And when you have trained that algorithm long enough, then you deploy that algorithm for whatever purpose you intend to use it. And then it begins to make decisions. Now, your average American, average human, practically anywhere on the planet, but in particular, the United States and in in Europe, uh, encounters uh, some form of an AI algorithm multiple times every single day. Decisions are being made in that person's uh, human environment which are being made almost entirely, if not completely, by a a computer algorithm that has been trained to make these kinds of decisions, ultimately to facilitate that dimension of the human existence, the human experiment. So AI is pervasive and it is with us now. The question isn't whether it will stay with us. It will. The question I think in the end is, is how pervasive it will be in the human environment. So let me stop there. It's a, it's a computer, it's a branch of computer science that is algorithmically based, supported by supercomputing and big data, which ultimately takes on the appearance of making human decisions.
1: No, I think that's a great explanation and very clear. When did you personally first become interested in AI and and more so what made you decide to write a book on it? Yeah, a long time
0: ago, actually. But it. it you know, waxed and waned. I ended up as a grunt in, in the Marine Corps, so my attention was directed into digging holes for an awful lot of my career. But my undergrad degree was in operations analysis, and it was in the 70s, the early 70s, where this science really began to take hold. And uh, of course, that that uh, OR or OA environment was very heavily supported by uh, war gaming theory, the emergence, just the beginning, really, of supercomputing. Uh, and and just the earliest edges of uh, big data analytics. So I found it fascinating, but didn't have the chance to pursue it. Now, you know, fast forward 35 years, I'm the commander on the ground in Afghanistan. And while I had sort of followed the science, I hadn't really uh, envisaged uh, the application of artificial intelligence. And then in Afghanistan, DARPA began to ship Uh, to me certain DARPA projects, uh, which were based on artificial intelligence. And it had the capacity to ingest huge amounts of information in the battle space. And through the algorithmic uh, application, through deep learning, was able to provide real fidelity on potential intelligence targeting uh, that that did two things. It vastly accelerated intelligence analysis. Uh, and Rich, you and I both remember huge rooms of human beings tied to desks, doing sort of uh, stubby pencil work, uh, doing intelligence analysis. It just eliminated all of that. And it produced the kinds of intelligence reporting that permitted me as a commander and permitted any commander to make decisions far more quickly. And of course in war, the that side which can move more quickly, that can decide more quickly and act more quickly is typically going to have the, the the uh, substantial advantage. And so some of these projects that were introduced into the battle space gave me the capacity to see into the battle space with far greater fidelity, far faster than I could ever have imagined. And that really captured my imagination with respect to the full potential of artificial intelligence.
1: Well, you've talked a little bit about some of the benefits of AI. I wondered if you'd talk about some other ones, and also, what are some of the risks involved with with AI?
0: Sure, you know, in the book, as we thought about the way to begin the process of looking at AI, there's really two ways to come about it. And if you'll recall, uh, Elon Musk uh, has not been uh, not been reluctant at all to say that AI will end the world as we know it, and that has uh, generated some reaction. And as Daryl and I thought about how we introduce the subject of artificial intelligence, we could either Uh, point to the uh, artificial intelligence in terms of the enormous value it will be to the human experiment or to the potential vulnerabilities. And it's not just AI, but it's it's emerging technologies writ large. But AI is likely to be one of the most geopolitically and geostrategically influential technological advancements of the 21st century. So as we began to think about the book we initially uh, were slightly inclined to talk about the potential challenges of AI. And then my fear was, you know, they'll get one chapter into it and stop reading because everybody's gonna be scared to death. And the answer, the the truth of course is that because AI is so pervasive today in ways that the vast majority of humans don't even know about, uh, it actually is making our lives uh, so much better. So I'll come to the risks in a moment, but to the, the, the benefits, are almost innumerable when you get into a a car that's been produced in the last uh, five years and in particular last two or three years and in a car that will be produced over the next several years um, ai is uh, present in almost every aspect of it when i uh, i bought a car in 2013 when i came out of afghanistan it really was a car in the traditional sense 2016 when i bought the same car three years older three years newer, it was uh, very different in the context of the kinds of systems that were available to me that required less of my supervision because they were making decisions, uh, in my road safety and roadworthiness that, uh, that I now just surrendered to them because it was part of the integrated system. And now I bought that same car three years later, and I don't describe it as a car anymore. I can, I, I consider it to be a rolling information system that's tied into the internet and updated constantly so that the smart systems on my car, for example, make it a safer drive, a more accurate drive uh, and gives us just just in automotive technologies, the capability to be far safer and far more efficient going on. So there's one example. Uh, One of the reasons that we went from four to eight years to create uh, a vaccine uh, for uh, COVID-19 or for almost any of these kinds of long-term Uh, medical emergencies that we may face that could take on an epidemic or pandemic nature was the capacity for artificial intelligence using, and AI is is a uh, chapeau name. There are many different uh, capabilities that fall under artificial intelligence. One of them is called natural language processing, uh, which gives us the capacity to ingest huge, huge amounts of structured and unstructured data and then to use that data through uh, algorithms to do analysis that we could never have done before. So we were able to accelerate the entire process of the medical and pharmacological and chemical analysis necessary to find our way through to vaccines literally in months instead of years. So there's, there's another example. It's the same with the uh, pharmacological advantages, drug discovery it's called, where we can get to a drug that can that can help for example with alzheimer's Um, we we are there today because of natural language processing and deep learning that we were able to accelerate the potential for a drug that can influence the pro the progress of alzheimer's in ways we could not have imagined so there's just the medical piece there's the the transportation piece smart cities have the capacity uh, ultimately for the the use of uh, emergency services and traffic control uh, that is, that is based upon big data aspects of traffic management and, uh, the movement of humans throughout the, the urban centers, uh, education. We can now tailor education to being output oriented rather than input oriented. It used to be that teachers would walk into a classroom and they would teach now under artificial intelligence with uh, virtual reality or augmented reality. Students can walk into a classroom, sit down and the entire environment is about learning of which the teacher is a part. Uh, but now also because of artificial intelligence, we can know by the time the student walks out of the classroom at the end of the day, exactly how she did that day, and where potentially a, additional instruction might be useful to get her or him to the next step of learning so they can uh, begin to progress even faster. So that the issues associated with artificial intelligence uh, are, are vastly uh, have the potential for vastly improving our, our way of life. And let me just take a second and read the, the dedication of the book because I think it's important. This, this goes to the context of what we wanted to produce. We dedicated the book to, quote, our youth into whose hands we have placed the full potential of artificial intelligence and other emerging technologies. It is our most fervent prayer that they are guided by the light of good in wielding these technologies for the benefit of all humanity. Now. I actually believe these technologies can do enormous good now, um, but here's the dark side. And the dark side is that technologies are values neutral. And how you see these technologies ultimately uh, employed, how they're wielded, how they might be waged in the context of uh, interstate uh, or non-state actors against populations, uh, there, there is where the technology truly takes on the characteristics or the character of those who are wielding it. So our our hope, our prayer, is that these technologies, which have the capacity of making the human existence so much better, in terms of health and in safety and in learning and in and the sharing of uh, uh, of those things that are valued by our societies, it also has the capacity of being a very dark force in our environment. Uh, to include, I'll uh, just an example from the session I had before we talked. You know we're rich you'll understand this phase zero in the context of a military campaign is where uh we or our opponents seek to shape the operating environment within which if we have to fight that that process that environment then favors our side phase zero is where we do the shaping <clears throat> and the russians today right now as you and i speak the russians are in phase zero Uh, in their activities vis-a-vis us, vis-a-vis the United States, uh, the transatlantic relationship, NATO, more broadly, the community of democracies, where using artificially intelligent uh, micro-targeting in the larger context of a strategic influence campaign, they're seeking to attack the most vulnerable dimension uh, of our deterrence, which is this area right between your ears and my ears And by attempting to influence our perspectives on the efficacy of democracy, uh, attempting to influence our views on voting and democratic processes and frankly, who won or who lost an election, uh, their attempt to create a a crisis of confidence in our elected leaders. uh, That starts to soften up the target so that when the time comes for us to come together as a people to demonstrate the will necessary to deter our opponents. Uh, We may not find that will quite so quickly uh, in evidence and our enemies know that and they are seeking ultimately to attack our will by. uh, Working over our consciousness, as I, as I said, in a uh, strategic influence campaign using artificially intelligence artificially intelligent micro targeting through our social media i'll stop there.
1: Well, and and a big risk indeed and, and we ought to talk about ethical principles and we will here in a minute i'm curious uh about the title turning point why did you and daryl select that as your title
0: yeah daryl and i talked about this a lot um it, it goes back to those things which are so dramatically influential uh in the human environment uh in the 20 20th, 20th century technology was important but technology wasn't didn't have the moment-to-moment uh, influence uh, in people's lives that it does today, and as these technolo- and as these technologies become more capable, uh, as these technologies become more pervasive, as these technologies, in fact, will shape the geopolitics uh, and the interrelationships of states in the 21st century we're really at a turning point. And as these technologies become more capable, uh, as these technologies become more pervasive, as these technologies in fact will shape the geopolitics uh, and the interrelationships of states in the 21st century, we're really at a turning point. Uh, We're at a point where uh, the dimension of technology uh, in some respects, I don't wanna go to the military side of this, you don't want me to either, but uh, uh, where in the 20th century the fate of our democracy and more broadly the West versus the Soviet Union often turned on our relative capacities and our thermonuclear arsenals. Uh, the fate of democracy in the 21st century and our potential, uh, the potential for us to compete against autocratic uh, leaders and authoritarian or totalitarian states is often going to be determined by either side's capacity to wield technologies. President Biden, uh, and as you know very well Rich from your own uh, deep experience in this, uh, administrations often take a couple of years, maybe as long as three years to get out their national security strategies because it's just hard, it's, it's really hard. Uh, but to his great credit, President Biden and his team have gotten out there some, something called the Interim National Security Strategy Guidance, uh, INSSG. They got it out in two months. And I don't think it's going to change that much, frankly, between that, uh, uh, interim, uh, document and the final, uh, and it, it, in that document, uh, the president talks about the efficacy of a community of democracies, uh, where even beyond the, the idea of the democratic platform of the transatlantic relationship, there are democracies in say India and Japan and South Korea, et cetera, which ultimately could come together. To reinvigorate this idea of a values-based uh, world order, uh, but I think extraordinarily presciently, the president's team has seen that that world order, in many respects, is going to be defined by technology. And words matter, and the sequence of words matter, and the, and in the president's language. He says we must account for the peril and the promise of technology, and he uses the the words in that sequence. So he's he's very conscious of the fact that our opponents are already wielding these technologies in ways that may put us at a disadvantage. And so we have to account for that. But it's it's also a moment of great promise. It is a turning point in our history where technology can influence virtually every dimension of the human condition, but also very importantly, the the global, ge- global geopolitics and geostrategic relationships of nations and non-state actors, frankly, who have much greater capacity now because of artificial intelligence than they did before. If you didn't like the price of gas uh, on the East Coast, if you lived along the colonial pipeline uh, before the Russians hit us uh, and uh, froze through went ransomware, the colonial pipeline's capacity to provide gasoline to the East, Eastern uh, part of the United States, you're going to hate it now because you're, you know, when you finally got the pumps turned back on, the price of gas was a lot higher. Uh, here is the capacity to wage that kind of conflict in cyberspace, uh, in phase zero, that can make our lives, frankly, miserable for the dark use of these technologies.
1: Now, and I think that's a a great example of of one of the ways that uh, malware and artificial intelligence have adversely affected our lives. Exactly. Well, your subtitle is "Policy Making in the Era of Artificial Intelligence. That's obviously something you all are heavily involved in uh, at Brookings. The book covers that in detail. What policy issues specifically do you and Daryl cover in that book?
0: Well, a lot. There are multiple chapters. Uh, I gave examples of how uh, life is made better uh, or more challenging potentially, but life is made better from everything from national security through uh, ultimately education and uh, Food security, etc., and, and and in all of those areas, the application of technology just can't be done unconstrained. You know, we once again we're doing it on behalf of, of our human population, and what we have to ensure, is that we don't in some way infringe upon people's human rights. In some way, we violate our ethical standards. Uh, and Rich, uh, when we talk about artificial intelligence at Brookings, and when I think, ethically. Uh, well oriented people write about this. Uh, we use an acronym called ELSI, capital E L S, little i. E is what are the ethical implications uh, for the application of this particular technology in a particular sector? Uh, what are the legal implications? How, how ultimately could a, uh, a car manufacturer be held accountable for the failure of an artific- artificially intelligent system in that car, which could create a catastrophic outcome? Is it the car maker? Uh, who's accountable for it? Is it the producer of the algorithm that is installed in the car or is it the code writer? So what are the legal implications? And as you can imagine, uh, those legal implications can vary uh, if they're not established as a, at a federal level, they can vary from state to state. So then what are the societal implications of the application of this technology? Uh, and the I is implications. So uh, we should be guided as we think about these technologies going forward And technology isn't just changing, Rich, and you know this well. Uh, The rate of change of technology is really breathtaking. And often, as technologies change, the body of regulatory oversight, the body of uh, policy that guides the applications of these technologies, uh, that occurs, that has traditionally occurred as much as seven years behind. There's a latency behind the the advent of the technology and ultimately the policy or regulatory framework that guides and governs its application. We can't afford that anymore because some of these technologies have uh, such catastrophic capacity to be disruptive or even destructive uh, in society that uh, one of the major points of the book was, hey, we've got to very seriously strap on right now, these technologies, uh, as, we, as we embrace them, as we employ them, as we deploy them, we've got to embrace uh, the responsibility to, to bring up to speed uh, the policy and uh, regulatory formulation processes so that our populations are not left barren of, of, uh, of protection. And here's an area, frankly, it's very interesting, actually. It's an area where we differ uh, in the United States from our precious allies in the EU. I think we're pretty well aligned in NATO because the technologies there are associated largely with defense issues. Uh, But the EU has spent an an enormous amount of time, I think to its credit, uh, worrying about what are the societal uh, implications, the ethical implications, and of course then leading to the legal considerations uh, of these technologies vis-a-vis the human rights of the citizens of the EU. And I applaud that. And that's because we are a people of values at heart. Uh, it's important that uh, that those considerations be very, very early in the conversation. Now we're a little different. <clears throat> um, the last administration, um, which I think did as well as it possibly could, in thinking about this, uh, sought to uh, protect American citizens, uh, our privacy and and uh, our health and safety uh, in the application of these technologies, but also wanted to be very careful that in do, in in offering those protections, we didn't create regulatory or policy straitjackets that would ultimately strangle innovation. Uh, and in our country, of course, you know, we're blessed enormously with innovation at, uh, at both startup levels and scale, uh, that give us enormous advantages, vis-a-vis our potential opponents. And, uh, so it's, it is a, um, a, a tight rope, uh, high wire act, if you will. Uh, between uh, protecting our citizens and ultimately stimulating the innovation that keeps us ahead technologically.
1: Well, sir, you've mentioned ethics and and it, you know that seems to come up a lot in the area of AI. The. US Department of Defense has issued ethical principles. Right. The, the EU has, as you've mentioned, even the Beijing Academy of Artificial Intelligence has has a set of principles, Ethical principles for AI. What principles uh, do you recommend, and, and why are they important as opposed to perhaps law or policy?
0: Well, I think one of the most important, and I uh, and I think you ultimately would have intended to ask me this question anyway. One of the most important is that is that AI is uh, transparent. Uh, that it is what we would call um, both explainable AI, XAI. It's called explainable AI. Uh, and that it is our AI, responsible AI. So for us, and I, I, I'm gonna take the Chinese off the table for a minute, but uh, for us in a, in a liberal democracy and, and, and in and amongst the liberal democracies more broadly, uh, I believe we have a moral obligation to the society to be able to explain how artificial intelligence works. Now, here's, uh, here's an interesting dimension about AI. We don't really know how it works. Uh, We know what its outputs are, uh, and we can formulate the the algorithms. But remember, I said the algorithms are trained uh, through big data uh, training mechanism, big big data analytics using supercomputing. And the capacity to expose uh, an artificially intelligent algorithm to, um, to masses, masses of data to train it, means that it, actually the training is occurring more quickly necessarily than the human can monitor the development of the algorithm. And so we have to be very, very careful that we are clear on how that algorithm has matured in the process of its training. And then once it is deployed to actually perform a function, so you have the training and then you have the performance portion. Uh, once it has been deployed for performance, that we're monitoring it very, very carefully to ensure that in some way or another, the algorithm hasn't gotten smarter than us on a particular issue and short-circuited, if you will, I use that in, in quotes, short-circuited uh, our intention to give us an output which in the end uh, doesn't uh, serve our purposes. So for, for example, um, we do a lot of work at Brookings on what we call AI bias. Um, and one of the challenges that we have uh, as not we, we don't write any code or bend any metal at Brookings, but we certainly do the analysis. One of the challenges that uh, entities have as they consider applying artificial intelligence in big data analytics as it relates to interaction, uh, human interaction <clears throat> is uh, is that algorithm in some form or another, by virtue of its exposure to the big data, biased in how it might make decisions with respect to the human uh, interaction. For example, uh, is it inherently going to be biased against communities of color? Is it gonna be inherently biased against communities with a certain income? Uh, Or is it gonna be inherently biased against uh, communities that have a certain nature to the income or geographical location based on zip code? And while objectively we wouldn't ever want that to happen, at least we would not ethically ever want that to happen. That doesn't mean some people might not want to. Uh, it could actually occur uh, because again, we're training that algorithm uh, with big data that, that then creates, if you will, a personality associated with the decisions that we've asked it to make. And those decisions will be generated by virtue of that training. And so uh, AI and bias is something that we should be seized with constantly And that's where explainable AI comes in. We should be able to explain why the output of the decision of this algorithm is what it is, and we should hold it to a high standard of ethical behavior and performance. And if we can't, then we can't permit that algorithm to interact with the lives of human beings about getting a loan, getting accepted to college, uh, the potential for sentencing uh, in uh, criminal cases, uh, this is why explainable AI and responsible AI is characteristic of who we are as a people. And we've got to get it right. And it's only be- going to become more challenging as AI becomes more pervasive in our day-to-day environment.
1: Oh, it makes perfect sense. Um, well, I want to ask you a little bit about the issue of privacy. Anytime we discuss data, in particular big data, the, the issue of privacy comes up. And I'm wondering if, if you've given some thought to how we strike a balance between maximizing the benefits of AI, as opposed to protecting personal privacy?
0: Well, my my immediate bias is to protect privacy, to protect the, the individual human rights. Uh, and that's, that's going to be a challenge that we will have to face uh, going forward as a society, uh, applying these technologies. Uh, and I keep using the word pervasive. These are going to become more pervasive uh, as we go forward. And I think if our bias as a society is to be ethically, legally, and societally biased towards the human rights of the human that will be subject to these technologies, then we're right. Uh, but it doesn't mean we can't be—we still can't be innovative. The question I think becomes: How far upstream do we swim with our ethical bias, so that the the code writers? Are, are truly biased ethically to ensure that the work that they do on the code writing for the algorithm uh, is as best as it could possibly be in the context of its ethical orientation going forward. Uh, so it is it is a tension that we'll have to face going forward, the tension between our protection of the human rights of our, of our people, of our population, uh, versus the very important stimulus of innovation going forward so we can take full advantage of the change of technology. And, you know, we're talking about AI today, Rich. We haven't mentioned, and it often never gets mentioned in this conversation, and that is that biotechnology uh, has the capacity of being uh, nearly as influential in the 21st century as artificial intelligence. Uh, And maybe the next book that we'll write will be on turning point, uh, turning bio point or something. I'm not sure what it is, but uh, th- th- there's that tension as well in the context of medical research and, and, uh, genetic engineering, genetic modification, gene sequencing, all, all of those things, which are vastly aided and vastly accelerated through artificial intelligence. Uh, when you start talking about, uh, genetic sequencing and genetic engineering, boy, you get into ethical issues almost instantaneously. You can barely get the words out of your mouth before people start to sit up straight in their chairs uh and wait wait for your absolute and utter commitment to uh human rights and ethics
1: well i look forward to that book sir and and you write it and we'll get you back on the podcast to talk about that <laughs> one and, and maybe we'll bring daryl with you next time would be great That'd be wonderful. You know, often when AI comes up, there's this issue of replacing humans throughout the workforce and and creating, as some have said, an unemployment crisis as, as, you know, for example, driverless delivery trucks. There's no longer a need for truck drivers. And I just wonder if you've given thought to that issue and do you see a risk of it?
0: Sure. And there's a lot of uh, talk that has been given or a lot of thought that's been given to this And you really do wanna get Daryl back in on that particular subject. He has done a lot of work, Brookings has done a lot of work on the future of work, Uh, the future of work in the context of artificial intelligence, robotics, et cetera. And we're in this so-called fourth industrial uh, revolution. Uh, And as you well know from your own experience, uh, the the first several of those, uh, the first one in particular, the second one, uh, first one being largely steam, uh and what steam brought to uh, uh the workforce and then electricity and then uh, early computing power and now artificial intelligence every one of those had uh, a pretty substantial impact on the workforce um and in many respects it it both created wealth the, the first three of the industrial revolutions created wealth that was just unimaginable uh and but enormous gaps be, in wealth between Uh, those who owned the technologies and wielded them for their own personal aggrandizement, and those who were either subject uh, to those technologies or displaced because of those technologies. And society really didn't take the steps necessary uh, to foresee what those changes would be and to adjust as necessary uh, for the potential displacement. We now have the capacity uh, to see how uh, the world of work, Uh, will change. And as we think about uh, how we we consider the future of work inherent to that conversation needs to be uh, the second part of the same sentence, which is we should not only consider the future of work with respect to these advancing technologies, but we should consider the future of workers in the context of advancing technologies. And so as we consider uh, advancements in robotics, which is changing manufacturing dramatically as we consider the role of uh, of AI in interstate commerce, you just talked about uh, seeing an entire uh, dimension of our infrastructure that will be created for to stimulate interstate commerce uh, with completely driverless autonomous vehicles. Uh, as we consider doing that, we can, we can foresee right now that the career pattern for truck drivers will change. And how does that change? How do we bring truck drivers into the process Uh, of being coders, for example, uh, to create the kinds of codes necessary to create greater safety in autonomous vehicles. We can begin to foresee that. There are some major corporations, uh, tech corporations that are in fact supporting schools now where part of the inherent curriculum of the school for students as they move forward uh, is a curriculum that uh, leverages, you know, we've heard the term STEM, science, technology, engineering and math, there's an inherent dimension of STEM in these technologies uh, or in these curricula where the student is exposed to these emerging technologies as a matter of natural course throughout high school. (laughs) They graduate and go immediately then into a two-year follow-on, which could be a uh, community college or two years right at the same school, But because that curriculum has prepared them really for the digital environment and the fourth industrial revolution, they're hired in large numbers uh, by these uh, tech companies. And this is a kind of innovative thinking that we need to uh, display as we move deeper into the 21st century, as the fourth industrial revolution uh, continues to deposit new and uh, potentially disruptive uh, or enormously productive Uh, technologies into the work environment. We've got to think in those terms. And uh, we can foresee this now. We've had three industrial revolutions not work out all that great. Uh, Here's a fourth where we can actually anticipate the requirements for retraining, vocational training, but also lifelong learning for all workers to embrace the nature of these changes so that they uh, they are employed and they feel relevant and they feel as though they're giving back to their society and taking care of their families.
1: No, and that makes good sense. It's good policy. and It is just good for the nation.
0: And we address that in a book, by the way. It, yeah, I, it's an inherent responsibility.
1: No, I think it is. And it's important. You know, normally on this podcast, we focus on the health and education of our nation's youth. And of course, that's the mission of mission readiness. Are there ways in which AI is being used to improve health or education outcomes for kids? Certainly.
0: And it goes back to, I, I touched it a few minutes ago, the whole issue of uh, medical research is a vastly uh, improved through the use of artificial intelligence. Uh, And of course the the idea of working in in the area of pediatrics, et cetera, uh, is is not immune from the emergence of artificial intelligence, uh, both in the context of the the theoretical treatment of children uh, but also in the practical treatment of children. So we have that dimension immediately. Um, With respect to uh, the, the nutrition uh, artificial intelligence is uh, being applied constantly on uh, our in the context of food security uh, and productivity and, and optimizing the capacity uh, for food productivity and of course that's the upstream part of ultimately delivering nutritious uh, meals to our uh, to our children either in their homes or in their school environments and and of course while there are dramatic policy issues associated with uh, meals to children in the context of the schools. Uh, the food security that comes from uh, AI involved in uh, in food research and productivity is, uh, is very important. Uh, and then education, as I said, uh, as we move forward, I think you will see more and more schools uh, embracing these kinds of uh, curricula, which have as an inherent part uh, of those curricula, uh, some dimension of STEM uh, or if not STEM, uh, Broadly, a more narrowed version of technology, which is uh, coding, to teach children as they graduate from school the whole idea of coding and computer science is not uh, terra incognita. It's not an, an unknown world to them. It's actually something they're quite comfortable with. And so, as we transition into a digital economy uh, and a digital environment and a, and a digitally influenced workforce, children who have embraced as a matter of natural course, uh, the idea of coding and existing and operating inside a digital environment, they, are, they have far greater likelihood of fitting into a digital future. And uh, so we're seeing a lot of that. Uh, and I think we have an absolute responsibility to focus uh, artificial intelligence and the capacity to wield artificial intelligence inherently in the school curricula of our children going forward. And we're seeing it more and more. And, and one final point, far too much Of the community, uh, of uh, the communities that, from which our children emanate in our country, are disadvantaged in the context of the digital environment that we face. And again, Brookings has done a lot of work on this for our our listeners. uh, uh, And Dr. Nicole Turner Lee, Dr. Nicole Turner Lee, who leads our Center for Technology Innovation, has done really groundbreaking work on something called the digital divide. And what it amounts to is, and President Biden has tried to remedy this in his infrastructure bill, bringing broadband access, the internet, into everyone's home uh, to create the kinds of uh, internet hotspots and universal access to devices that brings uh, the children of our disadvantaged communities or poverty-stricken communities or displaced communities, that brings them into the mainstream of a future for America. Uh, and by empowering as much as 10 or 20% of the of the youth in America to be part of the digital environment going forward, rather than being on the wrong side of the digital divide, divide imagine the potential for our society uh, when we can bring all of our children into an educational process and an access to the internet through broadband access with universal devices that can truly harness their creativity, which has been in many respects silent, and in some cases, silent for centuries. Now is our chance, uh, because the advantages of AI and the internet platform that brings it to our children, now is our chance to truly capitalize on the potential human productivity of such a big sector of our society that has been disadvantaged for far too long.
1: Oh, well said. Well, sir, where can folks go to learn more about you and your work? Go to Brookings,
0: uh, brookings brookings.edu, the website. And uh, there is on our landing page, our homepage, a series of uh, topics uh, along the top. And one of those topics is artificial intelligence, AI. And go there and you can find, uh, we've written tens scores of of articles. We've had public events that are recorded and online for people to watch or listen to. Uh, We've published a number of books on this matter. Uh, but we're not alone. Uh, virtually every one of the public policy research centers is uh, similarly uh, committed to bringing AI uh, for good into the mainstream of American society. And and we didn't talk about it today, Rich, but uh, we can talk about the whole concept of hyper war, which in many respects is is powered uh, by supercomputing and artificial intelligence, and it is a it's a nature of conflict, a multi domain conflict. Um, that does keep me up at night so we can come back and have that conversation. We don't want to scare the audience.
1: Uh, not too much. Well, the book is Turning Point, Policymaking in the Era of Artificial Intelligence by General John Allen and Daryl West. Sir, thank you so much for coming on the podcast again. I suspect you're going to be a repeat guest again at some yeah. point.
0: Thank you, Rich, and thanks for what you're doing. And I'd be very honored to bring Daryl next time. He is an extraordinary scholar and uh, and quite an expert on this area as well.
1: Sounds good. Thank you. Well, Abby, as I expected, that was a pretty amazing conversation with General Allen about artificial intelligence. A lot of things to think about. Certainly, I cannot tell if I am less intelligent or more intelligent after that conversation since there was so much I didn't know, but one thing that we talk a lot about is how the military has become just technologically so much more complex and I think this provided insights into how that's translating into different facets of our world today. So I I learned a lot from it. Now I did too and I you know just so many areas to think about between medicine and 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 kids' health and education and, so, and national security, of course, uh, you know, just a lot there. Well, I appreciate everybody as always listening to the Mission Readiness podcast. My co-host today was Abby Ware. Today's show was written and produced by Megan Adam Chesky, Abby Ware, and John Connolly, as well as of course, Ben Goodman, our national director. For more about Mission readiness or to find an archive of every episode of the podcast, visit strongnation.org. Programs available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Please subscribe, give us a positive review, and tell your friends about the program. Until next time, thank you for supporting our work to strengthen national security by ensuring kids stay in school, in shape, and out of trouble.